Hello, everyone. This is Dwayne Newstater and Tony Tressel, and our guest today is Tom Dunlop. And I want to welcome you, Tom, to another episode of Tree Actions, the Human Forestry Podcast. And it's the podcast where tree people talk about tree stuff and how being part of the trees and tree work and has affected their lives professionally, but also how being part of the trees has affected your life personally. We don't have an agenda and we don't have a, a script. We just let it flow. But we always kind of start off by asking our guest, how do you explain or where do you feel your journey in the trees began? Where did your acorn germinate? Well, I grew up in a camping and outdoors family. And uh, when I was a year and a half old, we went, I don't remember it, but I've got pictures, so I know I was there. My folks took my sister and I, and we camped from Minneapolis to Niagara Falls and back. So I've been camping my whole life. Uh, wow. And outdoors and stuff. And then, you know, uh, family camping in the woods and Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and on up to wilderness camping. Uh, and, of course, tree work in the wild woods too so i've been an outdoors guy my whole life and uh i remember you know i've thought about this like how did how did i become connected with trees and i have a really good memory of going up with my dad up to cousin's land in august and hiking in the woods and dad had a little bucket of paint and he'd paint a big slosh a, a blaze on a tree in the woods and we'd come back in the fall and dig that tree out of the woods and bring it back into Minneapolis and plant it. So I was out bare rooting trees when I was seven, eight years old. And I, my dad died about 12, 15 years ago, I think, 15 now. And I would love to know how he knew about bare rooting, but he just knew it. So. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So was this like a, an annual ritual, like a, a, an annual thing? And or how long did it go on for? Well, we did it. I, I remember going up eight or eight or ten times, I suppose. Sometimes a couple times, a couple of uh, Saturdays. He had, he, Dad got, you know, as the word got around to his friends of having trees, uh, you know, we'd go up a couple times in the fall. Uh, so, you know, through my adolescent <laughs> years, we were, we were digging trees out of the woods rescue rescuing trees and it's i still wow. do that i still do that so yeah it's interesting you know i was uh walking the dog last summer spring is a year ago about a year ago exactly this time of year and they had done some road work yeah, a couple kilometers from the house where I was walking and i noticed this nice little willow it was just a nice perfect little shape and they'd already it, it was going to suffer from what had been going on. So I went home and grabbed a bucket and I, like I, I didn't bear root it, but I, I brought it home and transplanted it. And it, it, it's it sprouted back this year and it's growing along, but it just reminded me of that, you know, and I just plucked it out of the wild basically and, and gave it a home. <laughs> just before I came in the house, I uh, was looking at a catalpa tree I've got in my front yard and I dug it out of the uh, edge of a woods uh that was going to get mowed because it was brushy area and they're going to right. run a sickle bar through there. So I just dug this tree up, brought it home from work 
and yeah. uh, planted it. And the, th the tree, the little sapling was, was maybe 15, 18 inches tall, maybe as big around as my thumb. And that was about five years ago. Now that yeah. tree, through my care and, and really stripping off a lot of branches because I wanted to push the canopy up. I wanted to have a tall canopy. Yeah. That tree now is, is probably 25 feet tall and at least it's over two inches in caliper. It's huge. The, it's a catalpa. Flowers are blooming. And it started off as a seedling as big as my, as any of our thumb. That's all it was. And now it's, a, now it's going to be a tree forever. I was just recently, I guess a couple months ago, I was back visiting. Um, I never knew my grandfather when he was alive. He died the year before I was born. But the house my dad grew up in, my daughter and I were walking by, and there's a bunch of uh, horse chestnut trees along the road there that my grandfather had planted. Um, and it's interesting to walk, you know, I'm walking down the road under the trees with my 19-year-old daughter that my grandfather planted. It's just a, it's always a different type of walk, walking by a tree like that. So you know, yeah. it's just because the tree, like it's, it's been there and it's been growing and it's seen all these phases of, you know, and I don't know why my grandfather planted the trees, probably just for aesthetics. He probably just wanted some trees around and, uh. Uh, and stuff, but it's, it's really kind of cool to be able to walk up to a tree and, and put my hand on it. My daughter can put her hand on it and know that my grandfather had his, you know, a man that I never knew. And that tree ends up being that connection. It's really, it's hard to describe. It's quite moving. You know, it's quite. Yeah. Moving. Yeah. Especially a living thing. I've talked with, I've got an arborist friend of mine whose dad uh, ran a uh, uh, crane uh, for building bridges and the old erector set crane. Uh, mm -hmm. Boom, not, not a crane, like not, not a hydraulic crane, but uh, his dad's well retired. So it goes back to that era. And uh, they could go driving around Southern Minnesota and his dad will say, that's my bridge. I built that. And he did. His dad sat in the crane and craned all the iron up and everything for building these bridges. But it's different. I think it's, we think it's different because we're connected to it. But a living thing, to take a living thing and saving it and transplant it is, is it, we did it 100%. And in the trimming too, that's gone on. There's a cool connection. Yeah. Yeah, you often hear people talk about the, how it feels to go back to trees that, you know, that they pruned, uh, you know, when for however many years, you know, it could be 20 years, 30 years, whatever their career is, but, you know, because of where they're working, you know, they, they end up being able to prune or it might be a friend tree. Like I have a, a lady here in town, just kind of a friend of the family that, you know, I, I, she planted this mountain ash when it was probably, it wasn't that big and, you know, she wanted some advice. So I pruned a little bit on it and then, and then the, over the years, the boys would, she'd give them, they, they would do little jobs on it. Right. And only recently it was just last week, you know, she, their boys are gone, they're growing up and, and this tree is now quite large and it needed a little, little, little trimming, nothing major, but you know, it's like, they just call us. And, and I was the first person that pruned it after it was planted. And then it's been like probably 15, 18 years since I've really done anything to it. The, I've helped the boys, but I've never, they, the last two or three times DJ's done it and Zach and now there I was by myself, you know, doing it and, and seeing the cuts that they had made and, and the trees doing fine. And it's just, it is an interesting feeling, you know, and that isn't even a big tree, but um, yeah, it's something that I don't know if, if roofers feel that way about putting shingles on another roof or plumbers feel that way about fixing a pipe, but 
You know, it's certainly some tree guys and tree gals can relate to. Well, I had a, a conversation with a, another arborist friend whose dad was a, a plumber. He had a van with the racks on the top and, you know, just the homeowners would call him to fix plumbing and put in a bathroom sink and stuff. And he said, and we're yeah. talking trees and stuff, of course, like we always do. Like when we get together, it's, it's just normal. And he said, growing up, he never remembers his dad saying word one about his work. And he was a self-employed plumber. You know, you'd think that he'd have an interesting story to tell about something, about a, a going to a client's house and having a, a cute cat or a fun dog to play with and tell the family about it, but not even a story like that. And his dad was, was a, and I asked, asked him, I said, is your dad huh. kind of a recluse or something like that? And he said, no, he just, he just did his work. It was just work to him where a lot of arborists, and of course, our, the, those of us, I, I call it, uh, uh, I, I got a saying, that, uh, I don't bleed, I drip sap. Uh, trees are quite a huge part of my life and our life and, you know, our friends' lives. So it's it's it becomes much more than plumbing to us. Yeah, well, that... That that's an intriguing statement, Tom, and I think it's worth you know uh, it's one of the reasons you know we call this the, tr the 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 human forestry podcast, and I think that that there is a lot like for many of us, maybe for some of us more than others, uh, that we have a that we draw a parallel to trees and and even and life and our own life lessons can be augmented or are in fact influenced by our experience in in the human forest. So like being in the tree forest influences our lives in the human forest. And there's a lot of similarities and parallels. I'm curious how you would relate to that or how you would, what you would comment about that kind of statement. Well, I'd have to think about that a little bit, but off the top of my head, uh, finding people outside of our circle of arborist friends, you know, I would say, for lack of a better word, civilians, people that are non non arborists, and yeah. I, I don't use it as a pejorative term either. It's not a not a put down or anything, but but those it it would be it's it's expected that we talk about trees and gear and all that sort of stuff. But to find a, a homeowner or somebody, you know, in the elevator or on the street that's talking about trees and seeing their enthusiasm and people loving trees or, you know, educating people about trees, people wanting, you know, and now with, you know, I started my career off cutting down elm trees and finishing my career cutting down ash trees. Uh, it's kind of an odd set of bookends for my career, you know, roughly 50 years in the trees. Right. Uh, with a lot of pruning and pruning in between and some planting, but uh, those, that's the bookends. So, uh, there, there is a real human part of it and, and making my living, our living in the city, you know, rather than in the woods, uh, right. our trees always affect people, whether, you know, good or bad storms or now disease trees or, you know, interfering with the, uh, roof of the house, you know? Yeah. yeah a lot of human interactions. Yeah. And, and do you think like, uh, as far as, uh, uh, just energetically or I guess soulfully or spiritually, do you think there's any, any parallels there or do you, you know, you, you describe, 
like you, you, you talk about that Catalpa, for example, with some fondness or, or perhaps even reverence or pride, you know, does, do you think that that in some way there's any of that imparted by the trees because they are a living thing? Like, is there, is there potentially something there or is it, is it something that, that that's drawn more from within us? Uh, well, the Catalpa for me is probably one of the first trees that I, I learned the name of and kind of got to know it because when I was in fourth grade, we moved, I had the upstairs bedroom and outside my window, neighbor's tree, there was a Catalpa tree. I could look over out my window over the top of that and look about, oh, a third of a mile away and there's the Burger King. Well, to this day, and that was... I was in fourth grade, so, you know, do the math. It was decades ago. That catalpa tree is still growing next to that house. It It's not very big because there's two gigantic cottonwoods that have always uh, overgrown it and kind of dwarfed this catalpa tree. Um, so I've always liked catalpa trees. And, yeah. and, and you know, people uh, – so – it has a meaning to me. It was being a tree that I grew up knowing and we'd use the beans for swords and, and, you know, stabbing because you could actually poke somebody with them like a real knife when we're playing army or, or whatever. We could have knife yeah. fights with them or a <laughs> stick. You can't poke anybody with a stick. Catalpa beans. You bet we can poke each other yeah. and actually have real knife fights and play, play knife fights. So <laughs> there's a lot of meanings there that besides the big, there's right, big giant right. elephant leaves and a wonderful smell of flowers. So Catalpa is yeah. a real powerful tree for me. Interesting. You know, you mentioned that it was the first tree you learned its name of. And that, you know, it, it, it's, I've always found it fascinating. It's almost like one of, like when you know someone's kind of got the tree bug, it, plant ID or tree ID is almost one of the first things that, is your first uh, passion or challenge? It seems like if if someone's really interested in learning the names of trees and and identifying different trees, they they're they're usually good chance they're going to be hooked for life. It seems like would would that be a fair assessment? Or have you noticed that there's something about tree ID that that is I don't know. It, it's it, there's it, it's like a weird. I don't know, like a rite of passage almost, or like a, a secret right to to getting in into the into the human into the forest, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the, it's a layer. It's a it's a another layer of involvement, getting closer or higher connection with a um, name, knowing the names, right. and uh, and now with with the various apps on the on phones, uh, it's really seemingly. Yeah. It seemingly is pretty easy to do that, although I, I follow a Facebook page about northern Minnesota, and some of the times that people are putting on there, uh, what tree is this? And it's just this wall of green. It's like, uh, well, we need a leaf sample, you know, a little a close-up leaf sample. And the guesses that people come right. up with is like, don't you ever use Google? You know, it's like, this is really simple. And, and and picking out the tree people and and somebody in, in there somebody said, I think it's the larch, and so I put in there number one, the larch, and she wrote back. She said, I wondered if anybody else would get that. 
So even Monty Python fans are tree people. But it's it's a connection with trees, and and a lot of people have that. Well, I mean, there's kind of an interesting parallel, right? Like when you first meet a new person and you're interested in them, one of the first things you ask them is, "Hey, what's your name?" Right? Um, yeah, I think yeah. I think the same. I think you could draw a parallel with trees. Like when you start, when they're not just objects anymore, when there's something that's worthy of of knowing, of studying, of learning about, then it's and then I think that's when, and I think to Dwayne's point, that's exactly right. That's that's kind of a litmus test for you know your your it's not just an object to you, right? You're really, truly interested in it. You want to learn about it. So you start to know its name. Yeah. 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 And then, and then realizing how many different types of trees there are, you know, like people in the world, you know, like it, and uh, it, you know, there's a, it's a, when you have a genuine interest in something, you know, and I, and I guess, you know, I think about my journey in life and, you know, that's, you know, when you become genuinely interested in humanity and the and others and their well-being, like trees, you know, uh, life takes on a little different meaning and a different tone as well, like it does for people that care for trees or people that care for people. And I've I view them quite similarly. You know, there's there's, you know, I can't care for every tree out there in the world, but I can certainly have the intention, right? Well, it and and, and spending a good chunk of my career running a, a small commercial tree care company and meeting clients and doing estimates and finding people that knew new names of trees, you know, kind of, they kind of fall into groups, people that knew, some people knew the scientific names of trees. And then there's some people that just, it's a tree yeah. and it bothers them. They don't need to know the name. It's just the tree on the corner of the house. So you have this spectrum and, and to try and enroll people, but, but being careful not to overwhelm them with, with you know, don't go to scientific names of somebody that wants the tree in the backyard. Okay, that's me. You're going to be, you know, it's too much for people to, to get into the scientific names or species and everything else like that. It's just a tree. But it's fun seeing people that, uh, uh, you know, homeowners uh, become learning more about the tree, wanting to learn more about the tree than than it just being a tree in the yard. Well, and I think it, it somewhat speaks to the their own human condition as far as where they are on their their path. And I don't think it's reflective of the age of the person. It's more reflective of the place where they're at, maybe spiritually or soulfully, uh, you know, to use those terms. But, you know, as you become more aware of the fact that you're part of a, that we're all connected in the in this planet in some way and you know and even trees are part of that then those types of things take on different meaning i think yeah and and having uh i i had a, a I, I would sometimes have seasonal questions that i'd ask a lot of clients and one year i thought i wonder how many times people in their lives would have interacted with an arborist and so I'd ask people when I'm out in the, doing this, and I said, since you were a little kid, huh. did your parents ever have to call anybody to do tree work? Or how, how, how did you, why did you call me? Well, what, you know, is, is this, and most, most of the people, and I don't have the numbers, but an overwhelming number of people would, I would be the first person in their lifetime, their lifetime, first professional tree care person they would ever have called. And after you know asking that same question to a summer's worth of clients, I came to the conclusion that 
families and people and homeowners, they, they, you might, they might call somebody twice in their lifetimes. And then we get those, that's that, that the, the clients that we really want that are repeats, you know, they do it every couple of years, you go out to do them, but those are, that's so rare. Most people only call once and it's, it's kind of sad, but that's just the way it is. I, you know, I think the the tree care industry being, I guess, virtually unregulated, you know, like, like there's really, at least certainly, I, well, I can't think of anywhere where, you know, you have to be licensed in some way, shape or form to provide a service. Well, or even if, if they do have some type of licensing or credential requirement, it's so loosely enforced or impossibly policed that virtually anyone that, that wants to call themselves a, an arborist or a tree person or a cutter or whatever they want to be can do so. And, you know, some evolve into actually caring about trees and some it's just a cash job that requires no uh, trading or whatever. Yeah. And, and, a, and a, something that our profession hasn't done a good job with is pointing out to people what bad tree work is and, and, you know, through the education and not having in regulations, most people don't know what bad tree work is. They, they can hire somebody to come in and, no. and hire some hacks to do really bad work or cut down healthy trees or do whatever we would just cringe at. And they don't know that it's any different. They've never been, the public hasn't, hasn't really been educated to define what is good or bad. If you hire somebody to paint your house, the paint is going to flake off and you'll know what a good paint job is pretty quick. Yeah. The trees are so resilient and they, like Dr. Yeah. Scheigel would say, they, they tolerate our abuses too well. They you can go in and do a real hack job on a tree. Yeah. Um, like I learned to do when I first started out in my evil Tom days, spiking, topping, uh, somehow Marv taught me collar cuts. He didn't know collar cuts. But we didn't leave stubs. He'd always have me, you know, make a what we know is a collar cut. Uh, and, and I learned that by just somehow. Yeah. Um, but people didn't know if topping was good or bad. It's what everybody did. I see more and more good tree work going on as I drive around and crane my neck when I'm looking for go driving down the street and looking up the windshield. And I see a lot of really good tree work going on. Yeah, it is. It, it is interesting, though, how... Yeah, you know, the trees, you know, don't complain or they, you know, they, and they, you know, if you know what you're looking for, it, it can be obvious or you can see that you can see signs of stress if you understand trees, but, you know, to some, it may not look like that. I used to often say that, you know, for someone that didn't understand drowning would look at a person drowning and think, man, can they ever swim? You know, where it's yeah. sort of like a tree's reaction to topping, you know, is like a person's reaction to drowning. But um, but but is what I find fascinating about that comment, Tom, is I know people like even customers that say whatever you do, I don't like the there would be the odd one that would say whatever you do, I don't want you to cut the tops off. That looks horrible. I don't know why people do that. And they know they don't know anything about trees, but yet they didn't want they don't want that look and they don't think it looks good when too much was cut or if the tops were cut. And it's like it's fat. And yet there's the you know, the next person down the road 
yeah, it's too tall. I need it short. Doesn't matter. They don't care. Like, how is it that some people perceive what looks good and what doesn't? Is that just like I like blue and you like red kind of thing? Or I find that really oddly interesting. It, it's that you know, it almost like politics and you know what what party you prefer. Like how you can have have people having such various views. It's really interesting. Well, it's what people have learned and they've seen it before, and they they just that becomes becomes the norm for them. It's, that's, that's what they've seen. I've got, hmm. I, I've okay. got a, a, some trees over here, actually not far from me that I've got pictures of. I, I would, I, for a while, I tried to keep a scrapbook of then and now or before and after pictures. And this guy had uh, uh, these two trees yeah. that had, he had me come in and um, pollard them sort of. It's somewhere, somewhere between topping and pollarding. But they and they have been done before me, and they're still done like that to this day. Well, this is because because of look. I, I don't know what the year is, but looking at the the chip truck I had, this is by now from from now. It's probably forty years ago, and the guy that I worked for and did the work for yeah. the guy that lived there was he'd be our well he'd be our dead grandpa, and at our the three of us at our age now. Because when I was there, I was, I don't know, I was probably in my 20s or so. Yep, and he yep. was the grandpa then. So this has gone, to, in order to get, run the timeline out, this is, this house has gone through at least a couple of owners since then. And they're still yeah, sort of polarding, sort of topping these trees. And I've got it, I remember, it's not on my driver. <laughs> I'm going to go knock on the door, see if I can, you know, catch up on the history. Not, And I'm not going to, I'm not going to polar them again, but just Interesting. See, See, see why they haven't, they've been recut, recut, recut. So it's the norm for them. So t Tom, you mentioned you, you started out, uh, you called yourself evil Tom or something like that. Can you, what can you tell us? How did you end up in, in the trees as a working arborist? Like how did, how did that all evolve for you as far as, and what was the, your first recollection of, of actually getting in a tree, like up in it, in the air? Well, the, the guy that lived next door to my folks uh, always had a part-time job. He was a lineman for the phone company and always had a part-time beer money, you know, cash job. And he did chain link fences yeah. for a while and then got into doing tree work. And he did tree work part-time. And his son and I were the same age. So we were either best friends or worst enemies. And Marv needed some help this one day. His, his regular helper wasn't... Right available on Saturday. So I got this story from my folks years later. He came over and asked them on like on a Tuesday of the week said, could Tom work for me on Saturday, dragging brush and cutting, cutting trees with, you know, with just a handsaw and stacking brush in the trailer. And my folks talked it over and they asked me if I'd want to do it on Thursday. And I said, sure. Well, I was 12 years old. I mean, who, who doesn't want to make cash money and, and do okay. man work, you know? And, and so that was my first job of dragging brush <laughs> and uh, stacking brush on a on a trailer. And I got to tell you, the way he told us to, to stack brush when I was 12 years old, there is no better way to stack brush on a trailer with a clam truck, anything. It is the best way. And I learned that on day one. And I've, and, and it, so anyways, he, he had some really good things, but he was a hack. But somehow, you know, he topped trees and that's what I learned. He climbed with spikes. That's what I learned. 
<laughs> we climbed with manila rope because that's yeah. what we had. Uh, free climbing, yeah. just put the spikes on. Sometimes put a lanyard around the tree. Sometimes just bear hug. Uh, yeah. A lot of times get scared. Am I going to fall? Are my spikes going to cut out? I didn't. We, you know, but he taught me. Then sometime in high school age or so in college, he's climbing around. And I, I looked up in the tree and I thought, I want to do that. And he wasn't the kind of guy we all know. We all know these guys that if you came up to him and said, "Would you teach me that?" They just they just backhand us like, "No, you're not worthy. Go away, go away." So I started right. paying attention to what he was doing, <laughs> and like if I, I'd look at it and go, "Okay, he's going out there. He's going to want the chainsaw over there." So I would get the chainsaw and I'd set it over near where he was going to want me to tie it on. So I'd I'd get ahead of him, you know. I'd I'd clear the brush for, on the ground where he was going to drop the next piles of brush until finally he says yeah. to me, when we were driving the truck. He said, do you ever want to learn how to climb? <laughs> Cause he saw, he, he saw that I was paying attention. I was taking it up a level. And so he taught me to climb and I've got, yeah. a, I've got a good memory of my first tree that I climbed. Interesting. It was a takedown, it was a takedown. So I can't go back and visit it, but it was a, a Siberian elm that was for a lot clearing. Um, Using a, a Mini Max six, yep. um, and a lineman's belt with a with a scare strap, and uh, all you know, all the things that we did back then. But he taught he taught me some really good stuff that you know the, the bypass cut and uh, snap cutting and uh, you know doing some hinges wow. and like, all that sort of stuff and double roping stuff down. But, you know, using tools of the day, manila rope. Or, no, hemp right. rope. Manila, manila was expensive. Uh, he bought hemp because it was cheaper. Right. So that's what I started with. Interesting. So where do you think he picked up those techniques, do you think, from Tom? Like, did it just, did he, did he was it an intuition thing, or do you think he learned them somewhere? It, it had to have been what he just figured out. I've never asked him. I have like, I lost track of him and I should, I talk about this trying to track him down. I should find him and see if, see if he's still alive. Uh, he'd be probably in his eighties. So, you know, not, he's still within, could be living. Yeah. Um, but to find out, but I, as far as I can recall, he didn't work for anybody learning this. He figured this stuff out on his own. So, you know, and we were taken down, big American Elms then. This is, this is you know, big American Elms in Minneapolis in the uh, early 70s, mid 70s. They were, we were taking some big ones down. Yeah. Um, a lot of roping and, you know, and learning how to, you know, run friction and, and stuff. So, and, and sometime along the line, you know, getting, uh, going to Expo and reading the magazines and stuff, I started reading articles and people are talking about these hacks and these, you know, other various terms for these guys that were doing really poor tree work. And I thought, oh, that's me. I don't want to be that. So I started learning how to, the proper way to do tree work. Took a shigo session, quit using spikes, and paid attention to what was going on with the right way to do trees. So to acknowledge my heritage, <laughs> I just call that guy, that's Evil Tom. And it's funny, a lot of, I've used that in, at, at Evil <laughs> sessions, like, like you picked up on it. And, and it's funny how 
a lot of people have evil fill in the blank, but don't want to admit it. They're embarrassed by it. But why? You didn't know any better. Yeah. You didn't know any better. If you didn't know any better, you can't be, your feet can't be held in the fire. If you're doing something wrong and you keep doing it, that's a different case. Yeah. And, you know, I, uh, I look back and I, I, uh, I think about my journey and, and, you know, my, where I learned to climb and learn to prune, it just so happened to be a, that when I look back, it was, it was serendipitous or fate because it was a lawn company that formed this tree division to keep guys working over the winter. I had uh, learned the Latin names of trees by working a summer job at university at a nursery. And because of that, I got fast tracked into getting a full-time work at this company. Cause the only reason they started the tree division was to keep losing guys over the winter. And, and I hadn't been working there long enough to earn that spot, but because I knew Latin and one of the, one of the guys didn't want to go to school, I got sent to school and all of a sudden I'm on the tree department. And it just so happens that the guy that ran it was a Shigo zealot and had just oh. been to a Shigo workshop. This is like 1988. And, uh, and so I was like, well, we don't use spurs. We don't use spurs ever. It was like, they weren't just, they weren't just shigified. They were like, we like topping was not just wrong. It was evil. And like it, uh, my whole first experience was all around it. And, and my second experience was working at a company that didn't like Shigo, thought he was, you know, a, a problem. Uh, not the spurs were a very important tool and, Maybe they shouldn't be used for pruning, but you had to really have a good reason not to use them and and that whole thing. And I realized later on, if I had started at that company, I would have been a Shigo hating treetop and spur climbing SOB. And I wouldn't have thought anything of it. And I would have thought I was doing a great job. And and as it was, I ended up being a bit probably more of a Shigo zealot. I learned that spurs were very valuable for removals and I was glad to learn how to use them like after three years of never having used them, including for removals. So it, it's interesting how circumstances, like you say, and I don't, um, you know, it was just, I, I had no choice in where I started in this tree world business, but it influenced everything I did after. And, uh, you know, and it, it, it you make a good point there. Um, you know, and, and it's not to be ashamed of. And, and I think it is important to talk about where you're from. I think it's part of just being able to accept yourself and where you're at too, you know, like to not like shame is a, is it can be a powerful thing. And when you, when you realize you did something wrong, that, that shame or that, you know, I guess it's shame can move in and, and, and it, and it should be something that the only way to release it is to talk about it in some ways, I think. And, um, but it is an interesting, you know, how that all happens is, is quite fascinating. The fact that you grew up beside this individual that, you know, you know, started a, his own tree company for or tree cutting for cash. And and that's how, you, you know, where you learn. But but yet you moved on beyond that into into finding Shigo and then and then changing your ways and, and, and seeing and and all the while, like as long as I've known you, Tom, you Tom, you've been open and honest about discussing whatever, like without fear of reprisal or concern, you know, you, it's just factual and, and open and honest, which is a, which is a pretty uh, good quality or an interesting quality. Not everyone is raised to have that quality. Well, thank you. That, that kind of tees in with what I was starting to say. So I was a perfect 
to have you finish that is that, you know, in my, in my life course, I think about the, the odd serendipity of, of growing up and having parents that camped and, and we went out in the woods and did all that woodsy stuff. And the, and then ended up being next door to a, a guy that did tree work. Like, what is the chance of that? And it was very life, the life forming, very, very important uh, circumstances. And then, you know, getting into doing this. And, and along the yeah. way, uh, I uh, worked with our chapter, the Minnesota Society of Arboriculture was in there uh, when we had our vision statement and our, um, uh, what do they call that when you come down with a, a company, the goals of the company, it's not vision, vision statement is, is part yeah. of it. Um, we went through this whole process. So I did that. And then I did that with another company that I worked for. And I, as I was going through this with this company, I thought, I thought to myself, what's my vision statement? I mean, if I did this with this chapter and it really, I could see it making a difference and focusing with the chapter and the, and this company is doing it. So I thought, I thought up my own, I spent some time and came up with my own vision statement. And, and what it came out was, is that I want old, healthy trees and old, healthy people that take care of them. So very, very succinct. And if it doesn't fit that, I don't do it. And that, and that really helped me focus on what I did, what I do, and the way I look at climbing, what I, the way I look at taking care of trees. If it's not for the benefit of the tree or for the benefit of the tree worker, we don't do it. You know, and it's, they, we've, we've got regulations, we've got standards, we've got peer pressure uh, and all of that. But all of that aside, that's just the, that's just the uh, enforcement part of it. I don't need that to say, I know it's right because it's good for the person. You know, the, we've, we've, we, we, could, we could spend hours talking about one-handed chainsaw use. We won't. Um, but that's a, a topic that comes up. And, and to look at people and, and talk with people about it and go, we do that because it's dangerous not to. Not because it says it in the Z133, and not because it's a bad practice. It's just dangerous. It's not good to do that. So don't do it. You know, you could do that for a long time because one-handed chainsaw use has led to too many, and we've all seen them. We've seen the cuts that they make, and they yeah. are ugly. They yeah. are ugly. Right. Well, that, that goes back to what you were saying about, you know, your journey. Like you, when you learn, you know, you don't, you don't do what you used to do because you learned how to do it differently and, and you honor that or appreciate it because you, you know, you, you let the learning change your doing. And I think that's, you know, you know, it's like, it's like listening versus hearing, you know, people hear not to one hand, but they don't listen they don't really synthesize what's being said. You know, there's, there's something in there about being present and able to set, you know, like the difference between learning and listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It can, it, it be, does it, does it get absorbed? Does it go, go into practice? Are you considering it? You know, you don't have to, if a change yeah. comes up, you don't know some changes, you should look at them and yeah, there's some things you should change right away. You should get rid of that. And, and just to keep the metaphor of that is one-handed chainsaw use. You should just not do that. Once you realize it, yeah, you should just not do that. Pruning with spikes, free climbing. You learn about how to set ropes so you're not free climbing trees. 
you just do that. Then there's stuff mm -hmm. that you should look at and just go, that's interesting. It doesn't fit what I want to do now, but I you to be look at it, to absorb it. You know, some, some new tool, a climbing tool, some new way of climbing the whole uh, single rope technique and what, what that, how the huge change that that's brought to the world for not just access, ex, uh, accessing the tree, but working the tree. It's, it's changed the way we, the climbers work trees. And yeah. it's also, you know, and I, and I said this when I was first starting to putter around with it, I, and I got flack for this, like you wouldn't believe. And I'd, I'd say, you know, SRT is the future of tree climbing and people will pshaw that and, and just go that, you know, you're right, Tom. Yeah. And, well, it's true. I could see that. And some people could see that, you know, they'd look at yeah. it and I could just see that like when you're teaching anything, yeah, people get that look over their face their total whole face just changed. Like, yeah, it works. Yeah. And to see that, you know, and, and having people that, uh, I mean, I got people into SRT that were in their 50s and 60s that thought that they were done climbing. But with single rope, they were able to, you know, continue climbing for another eight, 10 years comfortably yeah. and still have fun yeah. at it. Yeah. It extended their careers. Yeah, no, I I, I remember long before the, the, the craze really took off feeling very similarly that there was... I didn't know exactly how it was going to transpire, but I knew that it was going to be, I, I just was like an innate feeling that it's going to be, they're going to figure out, we're going to figure out how to manage the friction and the load. And, you know, the wrench really, really was the, was kind of the, the one that it, it, it was the, I don't know, the Holy grail for that change to occur, you know, the, its whole evolution. But, but yeah, I, I remember as a climber, you know, for me, where I really started seeing it as possible was when the hitches changed and seeing how the, how the hitches could react differently, particularly with the advent of the Masha Thrust in particular. Because I, I remember climbing, it wasn't SRT, but, you know, I would use a Masha Thrust on a footlock, doubled line, but... I, I used such a large, like I, one time, I, I can't remember how I came about it, but I made a really large loop. So with, the thing was just like, it was like, a, it was really large. So there was like probably 10 wraps and, it, and, and what I was doing was storm work. So I had to go up, knock out a rusted branch and get down and go to the next tree. That's it. Like, it was like, just get the hangers, the big ones out. We got to do as many as we can. And we're going through boulevards and one after the other, throw your line up. Well, to put a saver up and everything, forget it. I would just go over a limb. I'd tie on this big mashaw that I, and I, you know, I would do the, the, the ultimate sin of reaching above it because I didn't have it way long. I wanted to be able to reach it. So I'd, I'd push it up and I'd just footlock up and I'd do it. And then I was like, well, now I'm sitting here hanging in this big mashaw. And I thought, well, I wonder if I could dare try. Could I dare try? And I would gingerly pull on it, you know, like, hey, I could... And I could lower myself without burning it with very good control. I could stop and let go. And then I could, oh, there's one over there. I could swing over and I could even, ex I like I would literally look around like, is anyone watching? Hey, and I could scooch out a limb a little ways with this big fat diaper-like hitch. And and I could go and I could prune another hanger out, swing away. But I would, I would use it with like, like as if I was breaking some sort of like, 
ritualistic law. You know, I was like, I was sinning beyond all measure, but yet I'm going, man, this works. There is something to this. There's gotta be there. This, this makes sense, you know? And, and, uh, but you know, there was such a lash out against it as you speaking of Tom, that I, I basically kind of just put a lid on and I, I didn't even like talking about the fact that I did that. Yeah. But I, I remember there was one summer in particular, this has got to be in like the early nineties. And I did days of it. I got to the point where I would put a prusik on the masha, or I put a sorry a beaner on the masha, and then I extended it with a with just a piece of cordage, so I could footlock normally. And then I would go up, take a lock, reach above it the hitch, which is the sin, and then I wouldn't have to undo any carabiners, and I could clip into my belt. So now I had a short one, and I would oh. just let that loop hang down on my legs, and then I could I work the tree with. But I, I never could make it work with the Val Detain because it was too tight. But the Masha would work like a dream. Yeah, that there's there's these little these these little pinpoints of people doing this, kind of stumbling down this street and finding like like you did. Like, well, I wonder if, what if? And 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 I was at a buddy's house <laughs> and the and George was uh renting uh a room from this guy who was a caver. And I'm looking at the guy's library. And he had the, the book, you know, a bunch of caving books and stuff. And then he had this book called On Rope. And I pulled it off and I started thumbing through it. And I looked at it and I go, oh, this is cool. This is cool. Yeah. So I went to, to Half Price Books and bought a used copy of, of uh, the first edition of On Rope. And I read that cover to cover. Yeah. And I, cause there's, and I looked at this and I started incorporating some of the things and the ideas that cavers were doing. Uh, on rope, ascending and descending, but they had the changeover. And so that became, that was like, I, I started skinning out of that. Like, what can I get from this book? And from these, these guys who have been climbing up and down ropes for years, there's bits and pieces of this we can use. And so yeah. I started incorporating different things and getting rid of the doubled rope ascent and using a, an ascender with T, you know, T bars, yeah. uh, and for hands and feet and just various and chest ascenders and various things. And then I, then, then on rope two came out the second edition, got that, read that. And it's funny that on rope two, the, the, every it's read that the chapter on tree work in on rope, the second edition is terrible, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's such a great book. It's just like, who wrote that? I'm going to probably, I'm going to probably, I'm going to get kicked in the shins for saying that, but. It's like, it's just odd, but it, a great book, a great book. Everybody should read it. And it's a piece of history. And while I was doing that, like you, the, we, by, yeah. by this time we've got, you know, synthetic ropes and all of these hitches that are doing all kinds of dis different, really cool things are coming up and different yep. cords and all that, yep. that revolution is injecting in there. So I spent a season, I spent from snow melt in March, through snows of November, December, trying every different rope and hitch combination I could to try and come up with yeah. a hitch that I could yeah. work SRT. I couldn't quite get it. I'd get rope, I get hitches that would go up and lock, but they wouldn't lock going down. Uh, and it's like I, I never kept records. It was like, nope, that didn't work. Nope, that didn't work. So, spring of 05, April of 05, I was at Long Beach. TCIA Expo. Yeah. And I'm standing at the at the Arborware booth talking to guys. And I look down the trade show floor and down at the at the Cheryl booth, 
they've got ropes hanging there. And I'm pretty familiar with the tools that are out there. And I look at the booth, you know, this is down a couple of roads at, at Expo. And I, and I look at down there and I see some shiny piece of aluminum. And, and the crow in me goes, got to go see that shiny piece of aluminum. Yeah. And there's, there's Morgan Thompson with the Unisender. And he's just yeah. standing on the ground, just holding it and sliding it up. And they can come down. And I saw that and we intersected. And it's like this, the world just changed. The timeline of tree climbing just changed right here. <laughs> in the, the, the unicenter. Here's the tool that goes up and yeah. down the ropes. That was, that was, that's the beginning of the, of SRT. Cause there's no changeover and the, and go rope goes straight through. And then Kevin came up with the, the, um, yeah. Rope wrench, and it took me a long, long time to figure out why the because the Unicenter does it for me. Rope wrench is a great tool. It just it, there's some things that it doesn't do for me, but not to not to down talk it or anything. But it took me a long time to figure out why do people like why do trail climbers like the rope wrench, and finally I figured it out. It's because tree climbers we know friction on rope, like you did, like you did. you figured out like you just put yeah. a bunch of tools in there. You can make it do things that yeah. are kind of odd. You, you're you're out there yeah. on the fringe, but you you found a solution by being out on the fringe, and and you would use that to your advantage. So it's just these odd little right. quirks, and people were doing that with ropes and hitches. And here Morgan did this, and then it was but that's all all metal. It's all tool. Right, uh, uh, Kevin kept a rope in there, the hitch in there, the friction hitch. Right. And Arborists, we're comfortable with that because we know that. We know right. that. That's, right. that's it's our it's our little, you know, our, our blankie that we drag around. With. We know that. So that's cool. And it doesn't make any difference. I mean, people people knew how big a fan I was <laughs> of the Unicenter. Yeah. And, they, and they, they thought I'd be talking them down. It's like, well, I don't make a dime off of selling them. I just like them. You know, whatever yeah. it does, whatever it takes to get people on SRT, it's better for you, too. It's the future of tree climbing. It saves your shoulders. All these different things that it does over uh, over doubled rope. That's another tool. It's interesting, you know, how, uh, how, and how you know, you go from the unisender and then the wrench, and now you've got, like, the Petzl chicane with the zigzag which is, you know, now again, hitchless, but is quite a bit of acceptance, you know, and maybe it was, it's part of that progression, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And to see that, to see all these, I mean, I look at pictures of stuff on Facebook and I, and there was, I made a comment, there's a guy had a, what, I don't know what SRT system was. I think it was a, a um, rope wrench based, but he had, you know, all these carabiners and swivels and hitches and connections. It's like this complicated thing I could, and the, and the picture was really busy. So it was really hard to figure out what was going on. It wasn't a really well put together picture, but I remember people in the early days of Unicenter yeah. saying, Oh, all of those parts there, every, all those parts, those rivets, that, those parts could fail. And I was like, that was their, that was their down talk. That was their, their uh, trash talking. The unicert had all those parts. And I said, yeah, just like those airplanes we fly in, you know, the cars that we fly in, there, there's a lot of parts there. <laughs> they don't fail. Good grief. You know, but that was their complaint. And I, and I look at this 
this <laughs> setup this guy had. And I looked at it and I go, well, that's really complicated, but it works for him. It's all okay. I wouldn't use it because there's just too much stuff going on. Too much stuff going on. Yeah. But, you know, people are doing really fantastic things and going for, you know, that little bit of efficiency. And, and if it keeps, it keeps the person healthy, doesn't wear your shoulders out, you know, uh, keeps you healthy. So you climb as long as you want. So that's good. That's great. Well, Tom, you mentioned Facebook, you, you mentioned Facebook, Tom, and I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about, and I don't know that everyone's fully aware. I think a lot of people are, but, but, you know, Mark, we had Mark on the show. Uh, actually the last, the last interview we did, I think was with Mark, but, um, um, you know, tree buzz has been around a long time. It's got a lot of notoriety. It's like, it's kind of an institution and, uh, you know, you're, you're quite active in that. And a big part of that, I was just curious what you'd have, you know, your, how you got involved and started with that and, and what, what it does for you today. Cause I think you're still pretty active in the buzz and, and maybe not the face of the buzz in the way that Mark is, but you're certainly a big part of it. Yeah. It's Mark. Mark and I had known each other. We'd met at competitions and stuff. So we were, we were buddies. I wouldn't say we were friends at the time. We were buddies. Good. I mean, that's which not to say anything bad, but we weren't friends. So we were, cause he lives in Jersey. I live in Minnesota. So I'd see him at competitions and stuff and, and workshops and, and we'd chat and stuff. So, uh, uh he gave me a call in uh, the fall of 2000 and he said he had this idea for a discussion forum. And then we talked, he says, I want to talk to you about it and see about getting it going. And he, we did, we, we shot some ideas back and forth and, you know, what it would look like, what it would, what, it, what the feel of it would be like. And, uh, and then in the winter of 2001, um, he asked me if we wanted to partner up. And I said, you mean like business partner, like work with you on that? And he said, yeah. You know, you, you, I, I could see you doing this stuff and, and I'd do this stuff and we'd be partners on it. And I was like, it really, really set me back that he'd asked me to do that because of one, we're so far apart, but really that doesn't make any difference. Like we, the three of us are all far apart too. So it doesn't make any difference. Yeah. Um, so that was in 2001, we started, started tree buzz and the, the ideas that we had, yeah for the way it would, would run is kind of the way it still runs. You know, the, the social media has changed. So uh, it's kind of a dinosaur in the whole social media. It's a, almost a sticks and bricks kind of thing. Um, but it's fun seeing the value that people have found there and see old threads. People dig up, people go back. There was just a thread that somebody dug from the, the aughts. I don't know, it was aught three or something like that. And that, it, it, in its original iteration, it had maybe 30 comments. And just in the last couple of weeks, it's gotten 30 or 40 more. That's cool. I think that's wow. cool to have that, that there's there's that stuff that's there to go search and to bring that discussion forward. Where Facebook, it's, it's um, ephemeral. It's like flowers. They come and go and they're done. If you didn't get a picture of it and put it in your file, you're not going to go back and see that flower. Facebook happens this week right. or this day or now, and you're done with it. And that's it. Where tree buzz is there. 
and people that people have found value in it. And I'm, I'm really pretty proud of uh, the place it is and see, see how people use it. And, you know, the traffic certainly isn't there as much as it was when we started, but um, that's social media. It's still busy. Yeah, well, I think I think you should be proud of it, Tom. And I think it, it like as I mentioned earlier, it, it it's like a, uh, it's an icon, or it's 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 here to stay. It's always going to be part of the the tree care industry, and certainly part of those that are really part of the human forest, or part of the the, the arborist industry. And in a sense, you know, I, I still think that you know the people that learn the names of trees that that. You know, I, I think there's a strong correlation with the people that know the names of trees and care what they're called are also the ones that probably don't one hand very often. <laughs> but they're also yeah. the ones that are on tree buzz. They're also the ones that 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 spend time outside of work thinking about trees and, and tree work and tree stuff. And then are also the same people that probably draw parallels into their own lives, you know, and how tr- like that 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 integrate their learnings from trees in, into how they, they even live. And, and tree buzz is certainly part of the human forest and part of uh, arbor culture. And, and uh, you should be proud of it. I, I think it's always going to be here to stay. And we're, we're happy that uh, Tony just recently put a link on tree buzz for the, for the podcast. And in a lot of ways, it's, it's exactly part of the, the reason of this podcast, Don Blair commented, uh, uh, we interviewed Tom or Don, a, a, well, probably one of our first interviews was with Don and you know, his, his comment was that, you know, Dwayne, this is a really good thing you guys are doing because when one of us dies, a library burns down and to have this kind of thing documented or recorded, it's kind of like what you were getting at with the tree buzz thing. You know, these, these recordings that are occurring here are going to be there for time and memorial for people to go back and listen to and talk about and listen to some of the history, you know, of, of the human forest and, and of, of arbor culture. So um, it's fascinating about you. You've had some interactions with Don Blair as well. I think if I'm correct, Tom. Oh yeah. Yeah. Don was, uh, he's on my Mount Rushmore. He's one of the characters on my Mount Rushmore with uh, Shigo and my uh, Marv, my mentor. <laughs> uh, that's, that's my, that's my Mount Rushmore. And I've thought of having somebody actually you know, see if I get Brian Cutwick a do of my, my Mount Rushmore of, of tree influencers. But uh, yeah, I met Don. Uh, That's at, really uh, cool. <laughs> what was it? It was called uh, Arbor Expo, I think, that Arbor Age magazine did. Uh, in 1986, he, he was doing a yep. talk. And I remember sitting there watching him. He's doing this talk about speed lining, what became speed lining. And I'm watching this this slideshow and hearing this guy, this character, just entertaining as hell, uh, talk about this thing. And I'm sitting there in the, at, at the expo and leaning forward, looking at this and my jaw dropped open. Just, I'm just slack jawed looking at this thing. And all of a sudden I realized that I'm <laughs> scooched out on my chair and I sit, my butt is almost on, is right, is on the edge of the seat. Literally. I always thought that that was a, just a silly term. But I was ready to fall on the floor, and I had to stop, hitch myself back up, and sit back <laughs> in my chair. And I looked down the row back and forth, and that's what everybody's doing. They're sitting there with their jaws dropped open. Nobody's saying anything going, what the heck? Trees can go up? You're joking. 
and and we can oh look at oh speed lining that is just too cool and so afterwards i went up and talked to him and started our friendship yeah yeah i would have to say that don is one of the my one of the first edutainers in the tree care industry that i ever had you know and he didn't make it just informative it wasn't just learning it was fun and damn interesting and you know probably his greatest asset like all great teachers is his ability to tell stories yeah yep yep so 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 i wonder tom i wonder tom what is your favorite don blair story hmm oh having him uh read uh when the oak man met the uke man having don read that was in character <laughs> That's a good one. Right. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, that yeah, that that be he's agreed to he 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 really enjoyed the podcast and he said he'd like to do another one and Tony that might be a we that that now that Tom's brought that up we can we can we can see that maybe that's something we can can get Tom to do a special episode on Don Don reading in character the 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 the, the oak man and the Uke man and how they met. <laughs> Well, and and people people know that Don's dad was an arborist. Um, his, yep. his dad wrote an arboriculture book, and I found copies of that. I haven't seen one come up for sale for for quite a number of years, but I got a copy of Don's dad's book, uh, and on arboriculture, wow. and it's really cool to read it and see what was in practice and the standard, the the, the sharp point of what arboriculture was in the thirties and compare how much of the stuff we were doing then we're still doing it has stayed right. And a few things have changed, obviously, but uh, to have John's dad's book right. sitting up on my shelf along with Don's book on there up there too. So, right. Wow. Yeah. That's interesting. And it's funny when I, as I got to know Don, I thought he was, he'd kind of acted like a guy that was, older than me. Well, it turns out Don's only a year older than me. He's one year. And I've realized oh, as we got, wow. because, because he grew up with his dad's friends as a young man, his dad, he was grew up with his dad's friends who were a generation older than the guys I would, you and I would hang around with. He was a generation older. So Don is a guy to me that has really bridges a, a generation there between the a generation older and the guys of our generation. But he, he seemed at, when I first got to know him, I, I thought he was in uh, calendar years. I thought he was 10, 15 years older uh, because of his references and, and different things like that. But he's only a calendar year uh, older. So, well, that means you must, but, cause he just turned 80. No, 70. Wasn't it? Wasn't it? 70. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Because his birthday, we interviewed him. Wasn't it like the just a week after his birthday, Tony, or right before? Right around his birthday is when we interviewed yeah, him. Yeah. It was pretty close. I don't remember. It was, it was just before. 70. Just that's right. It was 70, 70 not, yeah. not 80. 70. Sorry. Yep. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're 69 then, I would have to infer. Yep. 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 No, no, not 80. Not 80. <laughs> Well, Not you know, I, but before we before we finish this, I, I, I made a note and I want to go back to it before we 
we've before I forget, but I, you you piqued my curiosity. I'm sure there's other listeners that are probably this is in the back of their mind because you talked about stacking brush on a trailer and that you learned to this day it's still the <laughs> best way. And I'm wondering if there's any way that you can describe what that is. There's because everyone's always interested in learning. A better way. And I will tell you this. My son uh, spent the summer between a, uh, 11 and 12 working for Mark Bridge at, at Bump Partner in Basel. He spent uh, – and uh, he came back from there with the ability to stack brush on a on anything like I would never have seen before. Like he could fit more material – in a truck box than I've ever seen in my life. And because they packed everything on wagons there, they oh, he only yeah. used the chipper one time. So he learned how to, and they had this weapon, this tool that was like a hatchet type of thing. And they would chop everything and pack and stack and pack and stack. So I'm curious if I, it just, I can't help, but ask yeah. if you could somehow describe what well, it was and how you did it. Well, Marsh, Marsh, it was a little single axle trailer. Uh, had probably 12 inch sides on it. And we'd start off with a couple of really long, low fan branches out on the bottom, make a nice, nice layer of fan branches and in, kind of lay them down yeah. and interweave the branches, not, not from one side to the other, but lay one on the left, one on the right, one in the middle, stagger them. So you kind of weave this mat and then you get in there and, 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 and somebody would be on the trailer stomping everything down and you can, cross break stuff so it weaves this, this bottom layer of branches together and stomping all the time, packing those branches into the corner. And you throw another one on there. And and sometimes, yeah. you know, so you don't have these big big Y branches. Try and trim the stuff so it's pretty straight. And throw it in. And, and what you do is you start in some pattern. It's the front right, front left, back right, back left. So you start four layers or four piles and you kind of rotate around and build in the corners and layer up. And it should always, the top of the pile should always be pretty flat and you rarely yeah. ever put anything in the middle. You just build these layers up. And I remember Marv going before he went up the tree on that first uh -huh. job when I was 12, he says, and I want you guys out there jumping on that stuff. And he says, if I see that thing piled up and start turning into a, Hey, pile and getting round. He says, "You're gonna know you're doing. You're you're gonna hear from me." And he's up in the tree, and and his son Steve and I, I I'm I'm up on the top of this hay pile, jumping around and bouncing on it like it's you know it's springy like a trampoline. And Marv, he didn't he didn't drop an f bomb, but he said some curse word, and it was the first time I ever heard an adult <laughs> shout a curse word. And we were goofing off, and we were stacking wrong, and it was kind of funny in hindsight but you're 12 years old doing a man's job and the man curses at you it was like whoops that's wrong we had to tear that pile apart and relayer it and i didn't know it at the time and we were only stacking brush after a while it, when you do that everything comes out and you grab all those that bottom layer of branches and everything comes out as one it's all one big tight glob uh, and yeah. there's no wasted space by carefully placing in the corners, butts to the back. And it just, it's just the most efficient. And I, when yeah. I had my yeah. clam truck, I did the same thing. I start with the corners, start in the corners with the butts to the back. So 
I've, I've, yeah. I've had guys, you know, when I was running my company, guys would come on and I say, this oh, no, we do it this way. And I, and I, they do their way. And I go, after a while, I just thought, okay, show me. I can learn. And I, and they'd pack this pile and I, and they yeah. go stop. And I said, and I'd have to go into the saw and cross cut branches to take the air out of the pile. Cause they had fluffy piles and they, you know, yeah. they would convert. Yeah. So that's, that's what I've done. So thanks. Thanks for asking. Yeah, you're welcome. It's funny because, uh, yeah, well, it was, uh, it was very similar because DJ described and he showed, he brought pictures. I never handled the tool, but it was, it was like some medieval uh, weapon. Like it, it was, it was kind of, it kind of looked like a field hockey stick, oh, but yeah. it had like a, a blade that was semi, kind of like a scythe, but it was really thick. Like it was, yeah. it was, it was heavy and it was probably four feet long, but it it wasn't an ax. So the back of it was flat, but it yep. came like it, it was wide and then narrowed and it was incredibly sharp. Like DJ said, you, you'd, you could chop an arm off in one swing, no problem. Like you could whip it through a three-inch diameter limb with force as long as it was green wood with one swing. It would just chop yep. it, and uh, they would they would stack and then they would swing this and chop everything to get all the air pockets out. It would just shrink down and they would just keep stacking it like that. Yep. And he said There's no one got near the guy on the, on the trailer because he'd be flailing this weapon right. That was yep. like he could. It was crazy. But it was sharp as all get out. Uh, there's a guy, a thread on TreeBuzz that just from last week, a guy lost his uh, uh, favorite uh, a felling axe, lost it in the woods, and then he found it. He found it again. But it started a thread about using axes <laughs> and and uh, uh, grub, a grub hoe is what they were calling those. And I've seen those before. It's a big curved thing. Yep, yep. And 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 how well yep. they. I've seen them. I've never used one, but I've seen them, and I and I can I can say yeah, that would really work. And and I don't know if I thought this idea or if I commented about it, but I thought about using that. And I didn't use chopping tools for, you know, cutting branches off. And, and it's like, and I I got to thinking about this during the while this thread was going on. It's like why didn't I use chopping tools for limbing? We'd use them for chopping roots. Um not everybody would use a chopping tool, but not for, never for brushing out. And I realized, you know, I've got enough training and safety and dangerous things to do that everybody has to buy into. I didn't want to add chopping tools to the work plan. It's like, no, if you need to take a branch off, use a handsaw. Okay. I can teach you guys how to use handsaws. <laughs> They're pretty safe, you know, and, and you're not, you don't need, you don't need 12 feet around you when you go with that brush hole or brush axe. You need right. a good 10, 12 feet. <laughs> Nobody goes there. I didn't want yeah. to teach that. I'm going to stay away from that. <laughs> but I've, I've watched videos yeah. of people using them. It's like, yeah, they. if you don't know what they, they do, it's like, yeah, they are wicked looking. I was just curious what Tony's experience is with, with chopping things. <laughs> uh, I, I hate trailers and stacking brush on it. I've been very fortunate. We've always had a lot of chippers and really big chippers um, to uh, to process stuff. I've been very fortunate from that. But I do, I do got to tell a bit of a story, Tom. I got to tell the origin story when I first met you, which leads into what I'd like to do next. So it would have been 1998, and it would have been the Arbor Master competition it's Stevens Point, Wisconsin. Oh. And I was there as a competitor. 
And I remember, I remember you being there and you were just climbing. I'm not sure why you were there, but you were there in attendance. And I remember you setting up hammocks and I think that's the first time I met you. Um, well, I know that was the first time I met you, but then that leads to the, for another person that was there was a person that then became a good friend of, of all of us on this. And that was Peter Donzelli. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the, one of the, I guess, metaphors or allegories we use for the human forest is even, even when a tree passes on and falls down and is no longer living in the forest, it still gives back constantly. And there's a lot of people in the human forest and in arboriculture. And, and I know for me that Peter has been, been one of those. I'm just interested in, you know, what's your best Peter Donzelli story? Because I think the reason I asked this is one, I'm, I'm curious, but I think, you know, one of the reasons Dwayne and I started this podcast is it became apparent to us that there's a lot of people in the industry that really don't know the history of, you know, yeah. a lot of the, a lot of what goes on. They, un- they know the technique or they know the, they don't know the backstory. And Peter was such a huge part of so much backstory. So I'm just interested in your best, pe- or a, just a really good Peter Donzelli story. Cause he was always a, he was always a blast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, uh, Pete was a great guy, a dear friend. And, and I think of him a lot. Um, there's a lot there's I've got things in my life that are Pete things that that pop up but one of the cool stories I like is uh I got invited to to uh to meet up with a bunch of arborists uh out in uh Colorado to go skiing for a week stay at a at a condo and ski and Pete and I both skied Telemark so uh that and Pete was a better skier than me um but he could slow up his skiing so I could keep up with them. And we, we spent so much time in the lifts talking about tree stuff and what he was learning about trees, talking about what he did as a, as a uh, engineer. Uh, and of course, telemarks skiing and how we got into tree work and stuff like that. So we just, my jaw was tired from talking with him so much and having just a great time. And, uh, uh, so his, there, there's a saying with telemark skiing, half the binding, twice the fun. And, and I've kind of adopted that for SRT is half the rope, twice the fun. And it's kind of a little, a little tick to Pete, but you're right. You're right. There's Pete's name has, has, uh, it's not known anymore, which is too bad. And, and there's things that, that he gave us, he, he, he took our path and gave, pivoted, we pivoted off of Pete and he, you know, he left behind such, uh, a different track for us looking about, you know, the dynamics of tree and understanding friction and loads and stuff like that. He had, he added that, that engineering part, uh, to trees that we would have probably gotten to, but, not as quickly and not as, not as gracefully as Pete took us. And, uh, yeah, a dear friend, a dear friend. Yeah. And you, you mentioned, uh, pivot points or like, like the, the, the tree care industry was changed forever when you saw the Unisender and, you know, you, there's moments of time where you realize, um, how much of an impact something has. And I, I, you know, when Pete passed, I mean, I was very close to, I was one of the first people to hear about it. And, and, um, you know, I didn't realize at the time, you know, partly just because of grief and the, the tragicness of the event, but, 
but what has transpired from that, like it's really quite staggering the amount of learning and research that, that Pete's death in particular has spawned. Like it's, it's just like, I don't think a lot of people realize just how many things and how many people were affected by his passing and, and, and how much it's improved and changed the industry. It's really unfortunate that it took that, you know, his passing to do that, but it, it's also, I'm, I guess, pleased that, I don't know if that's the right word, but that I'm glad that so much learning has at least come out of that, that particular tragedy. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I bring it up. And I like to mention it often is because I don't think people realize, you know, when, when Pete passed, that was in 2000 after his accident, what a watershed moment that really was for many of us personally that knew him, but then just as an industry in general, I think, you know, we really started to take a serious look at what we were doing and how we were doing it. Because I, I know for me, from my experience, you know, the, the lesson I learned was if it could happen to Pete, it could happen to me. And I'd never mm -hmm. thought that way before at that age in my life. And, um, you know, I look at it, you know, it, you know, from the tragedy, it goes, it's, it's, you know, like it's somebody that like loses a limb, right? It's like, they have to say, well, where'd you lose your limb? It's, you know, if you lose it in combat or in service, your country, you didn't lose it, you gave it. Right. And they often know right where they gave it, you know, so it wasn't something lost. So I look at I look at Pete's passing as something like that. It's not that we lost Pete. It's what he gave us when he did go. And uh, I think it's important right. that people understand. And, you know, they say you're never gone as long as someone's always mentioning your name. So there's people like Pete that I continue to mention their names because, you know, in my mind, he's not gone. And, and I think it's important that people understand that history. And if people get anything from this podcast and discussions we've had, yeah, the tools and techniques are great. And but really just to have that appreciation for where we've come from, because you, you really have to understand that. Well, and not only that, Tony, but the, the willingness to learn and, 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 and discuss, I think Pete's incident, you know, was the most researched or talked about fatality that may have ever existed or happened. And, uh, and, and, and that's partly why the learning that has come out of it, you know, it's, I think that, you know, the fact that there's still a lot of fatalities occurring, but most of them don't get the attention that Pete's did. And that's mm -hmm. a tragedy, you know, it, it, the, but Pete's fatality got such a reaction and got so much discussion and whether all of the, the, the facts were discussed accurately or like Stanley would always say it was never properly investigated. Nobody really knows what happened, but the fact is everyone was talking about it and did try to learn from it, I think. And it wasn't just a matter of saying, well, it wouldn't happen to me. You know, I think, and, you know, and, and, you know, even, even the amount of, even the fact that we have the fatality statistics we do now is, is, is an homage to Pete. You know, I always, people don't realize that, you know, when Shane did the research, when he decided to do his, his project the year after Pete's death on his, uh, his master's thesis, he went to, to, to Washington to get the, the accident statistics for Arborist, which they didn't know about. They're like, Arbor what? And then they only kept records for 10 years. Well, because Pete died in 2000, Shane was in 2001 doing this. They only had records to 91. And that's why to this day, whenever you see a reference to Arbor's fatalities, it goes to 1991. And that's because of Pete. You know, even that that number, and I don't think people realize it was 2000, 
or Pete died. 2001, Shane did the research. They had records for 10 years. That's where 91 comes from. Like that in of itself is, is, is monumental, you know, that he had that legacy attached to him because you always see the reference there. And it's, it, I always try to point that out to people because to me, it's part of just paying honor to the, the gift, as you put it, Tony, that he gave us. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel so fortunate in my career. I, Tony, I didn't realize that that's when we met. That's cool. I've got, I've got a couple of pictures. Yeah. From uh, from Stevens Point, I I'll have to I'll have to dig those out and see if you're you're over in the corner there or something. But yeah, I remember going to Point. Yeah, I think my other great claim to fame there is I think I am responsible for the leg scabbard. All right, because here was because I was competing right, and uh, so one of the competitions was you know you had to spike up a pole and you had to make a face yeah. cut and rig it off, chucking a block. And, you know, it had to be very precise. So I had a straight, um, a straight bladed handsaw and I literally with the, on the back of it, the, the non-tooth side, I put grooves so that I could literally measure my cuts. And I was all, I would always have a hard time like reaching around the back and pulling it out. Although I could always get the handsaw off, but getting it back in was clumsy. So I'm like, well, I could just, I got these spikes on. I, how, and I, there was, I didn't know of a thing of a leg scabbard. So I just taped it to my leg. And I would practice that way, right? Because first place was like 5,000 bucks. And I'm like, man, I could really use 5,000 bucks. So I practiced <laughs> it. So anyway, I'm there, I'm competing. And I can remember Norm Hall was a judge. And uh, obviously, you know, everybody's there. You know, it's a pretty big thing. And I'm, and Peter's there. And he's, he's a competitor as well, too. And I, and I get out and I'm getting ready to go. And I'm, I'm taping my handsaw onto my leg. And there's a bunch of people from Buckingham standing over there. And they're like, and I swear to God, next year they came out with a leg scabbard. So that's my uh-huh. claim to fame. I'd like, <laughs> I would just like to go on record as being the man that started the leg scabbard. It's probably not true at all, but that's my story, and I'm sticking with it. Well, there's a, there's a calendar timeline. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I don't know if it's true or not. Tom might just have the photograph with that handsaw taped to your leg, and then now, now you got something. Right. That was also the time too, I think, well, Scott wasn't there, but it was, but through that, um, I used to have this great picture and I lost it somewhere in a computer transfer, but I had a picture of me literally rigging a chunk off of a spar with Scott profit on the Porter app, lowering it. I'm like, that was pretty cool. I think I could still recreate that picture to this day. So I might have to, cause I can't find the original. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. Sort of like getting a karate picture taken with Bruce Lee. I, the first uh, ITCC I went to with uh, with Jeff Jepson was um, Hilton Head. And uh, the day after the climb, people were just climbing down at the park. And I'm hanging out, hanging out down there. And I get a picture of Bettis doing something, some crazy knot thing with a split piece of round bead that he was like, I don't know what it was, but it was some weird thing that really worked, that he made work. Um, and then I've got another picture of this this young kid. He must have been, oh, I don't know. He looks like he's about seven years old, uh, getting ready to climb up in this tree. And I'd step back, and it's uh, Jared Arbergino. And I'm standing there. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, what's his dad's name? Uh, Gary. Gary. I see his, I see his face. I haven't talked to him for so long, but Gary is talking with Jeff and Jared is there climbing. I've got a picture of, of Jared when he's like seven, eight years old. Who would have thought? 
So those those pictures to go back mm-hmm. there and look at those and look in the background and see who you might see, and and see these stories like this. Like I didn't know that we met them. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's ironic. It's ironic as well, Tom, because I believe you and I met for the first time. I think I want to say it was at Stevens Point, or it was at it was definitely at an SCA thing. Um. But I, I thought it was Stevens Point, but maybe it was somewhere else. Maybe it was somewhere in Minnesota. But it was it was definitely an SCA event, and Tim Walsh was there as well. That was the first time we met. But I, man, I can't place exactly it, where when it, it was. was. It would have had to been the competition if it was because that was also because that was the Student Society of Arboriculture meeting, and Tim Walsh was yep. there. Um, yeah. They were they were like hosting it for us. Um, yep. Dan Krause was there competing. I know Peter. I'm trying to think who else would have been there. It, I, that, it's really breaking my brain to think of it too much. But, yeah, yeah, could have been then. Yeah, could have been. Could have been. Could have been. That was because there was a lot going on. That that was a there was a lot going on that 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 week. There was more things than just just the arbor just the skills competition because of the SCA event. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Fun seeing fun hearing the first contact stories. It, it, we're, we're, we always reach about, about this time period, we, we're at almost an hour and a half and it's, it might be one of the longest ones we've had, but it, it, uh, they kind of draw, it, it seems like anywhere between 70 and 90 minutes is almost like a natural kind of segue to where, you know, the bio, the biology of the body takes over and, and, uh, other factors come into yep. play. But, um, I, I'm sure we could go on and, you know, you, you maybe, uh, a candidate for a for a sequel, Tom. If if you found it interestingly enough, interesting enough, and and we could maybe do it again sometime. Sure, sure. It was great fun. Great fun filling in little details. Yeah, yeah it's been great talking with you, Tom. Yeah, appreciate it. Just want to thank you for for taking time to share and spend time sharing your thoughts and sharing your most valuable non renewable resource time. And uh, anyone that's listening, thanks thanks to you as well. <laughs> Good deal. Take uh, care, guys. Thanks.